Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 23rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Liz Davidson. Liz is the founder of Financial Finesse, the largest independent provider of workplace financial wellness programs that leverages CFP professionals to provide financial education and financial coaching to employees in the workplace. And what's fascinating about Liz's firm is that in a world where most financial services providers aim to deliver financial wellness and education, either as a lead-in to selling a product or, or an avenue to maybe build lucrative advisory relationships with executives and key employees, Financial Finesse is truly dedicated simply helping employees improve their financial wellness and is paid solely on a flat fee basis from employers to provide those services with no back-end sales or product commissions. And in this episode, Liz shares the way that financial finesse justifies and and demonstrates to employers how paying to improve the financial wellness of employees really does lead to a return on investment for the employer, uh, reducing everything from employee absenteeism to healthcare claims, and how they reach employees through a combination of an online platform, one-to-many workshops, and one-to-one coaching, and all the ways that they tried and and failed to approach that challenge of financial wellness in a direct-to-consumer approach before pivoting to work through employers. You'll also hear about the incredible business opportunity that Financial Finesse is creating for CFP professionals who have the chance to earn an $80,000 base salary plus bonuses that can take them to a six-figure income simply by providing financial education and coaching to clients without any obligations for sales, production, or business development. An entirely new channel and career path for expanding the reach of financial planning. As always, you can find a list of the resources we mentioned on this podcast, including links to some of the research and studies that are now beginning to validate how employers really do generate an ROI by investing into financial wellness on behalf of their employees at www.kitsis.com slash 23 for this episode 23. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Liz Davidson. Welcome, Liz Davidson, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this episode because you have a a business around financial planning that looks very different than I think what most other financial advisors do with their businesses or or, or even are familiar with. You you live in the world of workplace financial wellness programs, but doing it with CFPs with, I think, a lot of stuff that that we would traditionally call financial planning, but in a delivered in a very different medium and style and, and frankly, with an entirely different business model than most of us are accustomed to in the the independent financial advisor world that goes directly to consumers. So I'm, I'm really excited today just to have you talk about this this new model, this different structure, this this thing that you've created over the past 15 or 20 years of, of building around workplace financial wellness. So maybe as a starting point, like, can you just tell us a little bit about your firm, your business as it exists today? Like who, who, who are you and what do you do at Financial Finesse? Yeah, absolutely. I am the founder and CEO of Financial Finesse, uh, and we are the largest independent provider of workplace financial wellness programs. And as you mentioned, it's a really different model because 
instead of having the employee pay for the advice, either on a fee-only basis or assets under management or anything like that, the employer is paying us, and it's not for advice, it's for education and guidance around all aspects of an employee's financial life. And so it's really a full spectrum, very holistic, highly personalized service. And what we're doing is really coaching and helping employees develop the right financial habits and behaviors and make the best possible decisions about maximizing their compensation and their benefits so that they get to a place where they have enough investable assets you know, to, to be able to work with an advisor who can kind of take it from there. So it's very synergistic with financial advice, but it really addresses the vast majority of Americans that don't have sufficient investable assets to work with an advisor. And even better, it's subsidized by the employer as an employee benefit. So there's no cost to the employee, as well as no conflict of interest associated with anything that we're saying. We have no skin in the game because we do not sell financial products or services and we do not manage assets. So can you help us understand what a typical engagement looks like? Because I, you know, maybe I'm 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 biased to it. Like my only context for how any kind of financial education gets delivered in the workplace is like back from my very early days in the business. I remember like I worked with an advisor that did 401k plans and I did, you know, I was involved in a couple of 401k enrollment meetings, which had this like rotating door, like come in for 15 minutes and we'll explain to you investment 101 and try to make a asset allocation recommendation that wasn't really a recommendation because you weren't supposed to give an investment recommendation, but you kind of give educational guidance and then they would move on. The next person would come in and, you know, five minutes of chit-chat and five minutes of financial education and help them select their asset allocation and on with the next. So I'm, I'm going to presume this is not not that, but can you help us understand like how, how to, what does this look like for employees in a workplace environment getting this kind of ongoing, I don't even know what you call it, like do you call it financial planning? Do you call it financial coaching? Like what do you even, what do you actually call the thing you're doing for the for the clients? You know, this is a really important question because it relates to how and why I started the business was understanding that education used to be very much about the thing, you know, the 401k or the company's benefits or even the topic, right? We need to teach people about asset allocation and let's try to make it interesting and have pizza <laughs> in the lunch and learn, right? And and the reality is people, no one thinks of themselves outside of those in the industry, no one thinks of themselves as a retirement plan participant or a you know a health plan participant, right? They they think of themselves as as people who have complex lives and different financial goals and challenges and you know they 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 want to have the best possible life now and the best possible life in the future. So what it really is, is it flips the traditional model on its head, which says, let's take these concepts or benefits and try to make people interested in them and get them to take good you know, action. And instead says, let's start with the people and their needs, meet them where they're at and find a way through a coaching process that is multi-channel. Some people actually learn best in group environments. Some people learn best online. Some people need ongoing personal coaching. Many people need all of the above because that multi-channel approach really reinforces the learning and engages them 
in a way that a single channel won't. But let's take it and make it about them, personalize it to them, and connect it to how taking the right steps today improves their lives in the future and how maximizing their benefits can make such a big difference without costing much more money. So so how does this come down to the individual participant? Like, I, I like financial finesse assigns me my financial planner that I'm going to meet with on a regular ongoing basis. Do you like just come out to my firm and I get to meet with you and just do my thing on the spot, but then that's it because you've got other firms and other clients and other businesses to work with? Like, what does the employee actually get in this model? Well, well, we work with the employers to customize the full employee experience because we have companies that are manufacturing-based or, you know, construction-based or tech-based. And they're all – the employees have not only different financial issues, they have different kind of – hours of operation or, you know, times where it is convenient or not convenient to access the coaching. So it really is customizing the program. But typically what it will consist of is an online financial wellness assessment where the employee gets a very good understanding of where they stand from a financial wellness perspective, what their score is on a zero to 10 scale, their key vulnerabilities and next steps. And the next steps embed all of the benefits that are appropriate for that individual because we find that people really leave a lot of money on the table by not maximizing the benefits. So they start there typically and then progress to workshops, webcasts, and one-on-one coaching where they often work with the same financial planner over time, and then they use the assessment to measure progress. So if I start out and I'm a four on a scale of one to 10, and my issues are around more basic money management. I work with a planner. I cut some expenses on my budget. I establish an emergency fund and I make some good progress paying down debt. Next time I take the assessment, I might be at a five or a six and it might be more proactive issues that are going to be recommended to me. And then I work with the planner on those issues. And it's just kind of this cycle of, you know, the, the wellness assessment being the scale, right? If you take it to an analogy with physical wellness and the planner being the trainer that gets you to to stay on course so that, and the only difference is you want to increase your score in our wellness assessment versus losing weight in the scale, but so that you you have that success. And I guess that's an interesting point to make. We, I think a lot of us in the traditional advising end, we're used to, we we start with the one-on-one with the client. Like that's, that's the whole scope of our, our engagement is, is, the one-to-one financial planning process. Whereas your model, because an employer hires you, an employer has a lot of employees with a wide range of needs, not all of whom may necessarily even want or be ready to meet with someone one-on-one. You've effectively got this spectrum. So there's some there's some purely self-directed through the assessment. There's some workshops, webcasts, like group format, one-to-many mechanisms of trying to help them with their financial issues. And then they they can move up to the one-on-one coaching if they want or if they need. Yeah, that's essentially – I mean, you've essentially stated the, the multi-channel model. And again, what, what we're doing when we're working with a large company is assessing their employee base and determining what are going to be the best methods and how and to whom. Because it may be that they say, you know, for – certain employees that we know are under significant financial stress, you know, we want to offer in-person one-on-ones followed by phone-based coaching for employees that, you know, are are doing 
relatively well. It may be more, you know, advanced workshops and you may be kind of really helping them ultimately figure out how to find a good financial planner to manage their assets. So it's it's really segmenting the workforce the right way based on that company's needs. So you leverage the services to the get the best return on investment for both the employer and the individual employees. So what do you find for firms in terms of how many engage or how many engage at, at these at these different levels? Like do most just kind of take the wellness assessment, get some tips, realize where to focus themselves, then go off on their own? Or or do most of them like move to the workshops or, or webcasts, but but they kind of stop there? Or, or do you really find most of them drive all the way through and want one-on-one coaching? What's the what do you find the utilization is across those those different channels? You know, it's a it's a full spectrum. And what we do see is obviously industry makes a big difference, as well as how long the biggest driver is how long the client has been with us and how much commitment they have to the program. For clients that have done this for five years or longer, we see the majority of employees interacting through multiple mediums. The most common medium is the online financial wellness assessment, followed by workshops and webcasts. And then after that, you get the financial coaching over the phone. And then the one-on-ones, because they're the least scalable, they tend to be reserved for specific employee populations, maybe, you know, pre-retirees, very financially stressed employees, you know, brand new employees to kind of help them understand the, the benefits and maximize their benefits and get off on the right foot. You know, it, it really varies, but it is a progressive thing that word of mouth and employees sharing their success stories with each other, both in public forums, you know, online through video and chat and things like that. And, you know, privately to say, hey, this really has helped me. You should try it out is what drives utilization. And so what what do employers pay for this? So you, you said like the employees don't pay. This is this is typically employer paid. So like employers just pay a flat fee for a whole engagement or or is the is the model like a per head you know it's it's fifty dollars per employee to be in our program because we know it'll kind of average out that if you know all thousand or however many employees are in the program we know some percentage of them are probably going to do the wellness assessments and then some are going to do workshops and webcasts and a few will move on to one-on-one coaching and you can kind of set a per head price that across all the different utilization channels we know it adds up to a point that you can run your business and be viable as a business? Yeah. So we work typically with large companies and the average engagement, you know, is well into the six figures, sometimes into the seven figures. Average contract size is about three years because there's an increasing understanding that this is a process. This is not, you know, kind of a a one-time event. So what we do is, you know, we have a pricing model that we're really... I mean, you know, I kind of call it a sushi menu. So we're really adding up, well, how many days of service delivery, which can include one-on-ones, workshops, or webcasts do you want? The financial helpline, which is our coaching line, is per employee per month. So that's based off of total number of employees. The online financial learning center that contains the personal assessment is a license fee, but it is tiered by size of organizations. So we're adding all of that up. Coupled with any additional above and beyond, you know, marketing communications or consulting we may do around the programs. And that becomes, you know, the program and the the cost. So, you know, it's very different depending on the employer's commitment and the, the level of service that they want. 
And so that's why you situations like one-on-one might be controlled to particular targeted groups of pre-retirees or some financially stressed folks because the that falls under the the days of service kind of pricing tier, which is I'm going to presume a, a little bit more expensive since it's literally much more labor intensive than some of the online tools, which which clearly scale much more easily. So, can you give me a sense of like what does this usually add up to? I mean, if I'm an employer and I'm coming to the table, I'm just trying to get a sense. I'm like, you know, Liz, roughly, what's my like what's my bottom line? That I'm looking at on this. Like, when you add up t- typical packages, is this like $25 an employee, $100 an employee, adds up to like $1,000 per employee. I mean, is there, is there at least like a typical range as to what this usually adds up to in terms of cost per employee? Uh, yeah, I mean, and that, again, is going to range pretty significantly, but I would say 10 to, on the very, you know, low side, if someone's doing a very program to, you know, $100 uh, per employee per year, Again, you know, it, it really, you know, we work off of a fixed fee, adding all of the different elements together and then, you know, kind of freezing the pricing for three years is our, our traditional model. So, you know, a, a large company, you know, would pay probably 250 to 500,000 per year. And a mega firm, you know, where you're dealing with hundreds of thousands of employees, you're going to be into the million, you know, plus per year. But I, I'm just curious, like I'm, I'm trying to translate it into what I think most of us on the, at least the independent advisor side are used to, which is like, I go see a client, they pay me X dollars, I get paid X dollars per client. So I'm, I'm just trying to understand like how to cost break down on a per client, or I guess in your context, a per employee basis across the different channels. Like if I'm a, if I'm a million dollar contract in some large firm with ten thousand plus employees, then I'm I'm effectively at about a hundred dollars an employee. Like, is is that a fair way to think about it, or or you guys don't even view the model that way? We don't view the model that way, but you know, I think obviously, you know, everyone can kind of divide and say, well, this is the effective per employee cost. You know, a lot of the value is not only in the delivery of the service, but all the marketing and analytics that are captured throughout so that you're continually um, evolving the program. And because you do see employees grow and improve and their needs change. And the marketing of it is huge because, you know, if you build this great financial wellness program, but no one comes, it's, you know, field of dreams, right? That you need to, you need to have, I mean, we often have employers that are offering incentives to participate that are associated with their overall wellness programs where they're incentivizing for different behaviors on the health side. So, you know, it's really, we're, we're looking at it really as a combination of consulting around how to design these programs, as well as the service delivery of the programs, and then even measuring the results and return on investment. So let's, let's talk about that end for a moment of, of return on investment. Cause I, I, you know, I know a lot of advisors over the years that have tried to do Various forms of financial planning, financial education, financial wellness through employer channels. And and most seem to struggle with this dynamic of like, yeah, our employees have financial need and probably make a lot of the mistakes and and you know, we we'd like to we like to do more for them and help them and, and oh wait, we have to pay and it costs how much? Oh yeah, never mind. No, we weren't that serious about it. And you know, employers that balk on the the cost or justifying the ROI of building this kind of program and 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 paying for it. And so I'm I'm curious like how do you 
frame to employers around ROI. You know, when a small employer is going to be writing a six-figure check or a large firm is going to be writing a seven-figure check, which granted for a lot of large firms, like a million bucks ain't a huge number for them given some of the size of some of the large businesses, but still a million bucks, a million bucks. And that's a big contract that someone's backside is on the line for having signed off with you. So how, how do you frame the 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 ROI kind of conversation with an employer to make the case for why they should pay for your firm to do all this financial education, financial wellness training? Well, you know, I think there's a couple of things that really work in our favor. The first one is we operate strictly off of inbound leads that come from word of mouth, mainly from clients that have worked with us, but also press research we've done. You know, in the big company HR world, it's it's a small world in a lot of ways because they go to the same conferences and events. So you you start to build a reputation and people call you. So by the time they're calling us, they've already determined this is at least something they're interested in. And in many cases, they already have signed off to do it. And it's a matter of who are they going to partner with? So that certainly helps a lot because I think the ROI, whether formally or informally, has kind of been done or they've seen or read about the success of programs and of, you know, management's bought into it. For the ones that are earlier stage and say to me, that this is expensive or it's a very big spend and, you know, they need to make the business case to management. I mean, really, it comes down to what does it cost not to do this? And when you look at the impact that financial stress has on healthcare costs alone, it's far, 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 far outweighs the fees that we or any other providers charge for this. But then you look at the impact of delayed retirement, which is employees, especially in blue-collar work environments, that really want to retire, are ready to retire physically, mentally, emotionally, but can't afford to do so. And that's a problem for them. That's a problem for the employer in terms of increased health care cost. You know, they're obviously many t- cases saving for retirement. Their, their paychecks, because of their tenure, tend to be higher than who would replace them. You know, it, it, it's a huge, huge issue. This becomes kind of a, a, a nice way to get some maybe higher paid tenured employees to kindly move themselves on out the door to replace with some newer newer employees that may be lower cost because you don't have to go and fire them and give them severance or do layoffs or anything like that. You just proactively try to help them actually get to the retirement finish line and then they actually happily leave and move on because they're ready for that next stage of life. And the employer gets some frees up some some salary dollars when they do the the replacement for with younger employees. Yes, and I, I really want to stress one thing. There is, you know, we've worked certainly with law firms and consulting firms, and you know, just very large household name companies where you have people in their seventies or even eighties who love work and are engaged and are not necessarily, I mean, they're bringing much more value than they're costing. So this really is the situation where someone does not want to work or physically is having challenges working. And so it's a win for both the employer and the employee. And yeah, it's, I think, an important issue. And it's even with the, the market doing as well as it is, you know, a lot of these people went in to work expecting, you know, more support from their employers in the form of pensions and, you know, are nervous and concerned about their ability to retire. 
And so from the employer's perspective, those are the kinds of metrics I, I would I would try to look at for this. It's, you know, if you can help improve financial wellness for my employees, I should have, you know, fewer work absences, fewer healthcare costs and claims, which I guess for a subset of firms at least partially self-insure their their health insurance in the large firm environment. Like that that actually is a real dollar savings if you if you cut down on their healthcare costs and you know, getting some employees to retire that, that maybe should have retired but haven't retired yet and you can and you can help them get there. Those are the kinds of dollar pieces that mid to large size firms look at when they're trying to figure out are we getting an ROI off of this uh, financial wellness program? Yeah, and there's one more thing that's becoming increasingly important, which is employee engagement and employee satisfaction with their pay and benefits. And I'm sure you've read studies on millennials and, you know, I've read anywhere from, you know, 18 to 24 months is, you know, the typical tenure, right, at an organization. Well, I mean, studies show it takes typically a year plus to get an employee to be fully productive in terms of adding the value that you hired them to add, right? And then they're going to be leaving shortly thereafter, potentially. That's a problem. So, it's helping employees really maximize the pay and benefits they have so that they feel that their em- employer is invested in their financial security and so that they are financially comfortable and aren't as tempted to leave because, oh, if I leave, I'm going to get a pay raise because everyone knows if you stay around, you know, your pay is not going to increase at the same rate as if you leave. Not necessarily true, but that's kind of, I think, the mentality, the free agency mentality. So companies are kind of stepping in going, wait a minute, we want to show you the value we bring you today and how this is going to contribute to your financial security so that that you'll stick around. Interesting. I mean, are most employers even, I mean, I hate to say like, are most employers, like, are their systems even linked enough to figure out they're getting the ROI when they're getting the ROI or do they... Do they have to take it on faith or or like are there a, a couple of recognized studies in the wellness world that were like, here are three big firms that have a case example where they could justify the ROI, improve the numbers, and then everybody just cites that, that study because like that's the one that proved it. I mean, I like for a lot of large firms, I know just figuring out how to actually link all of those dots to prove their ROI is just like a, a systems issue because all their other all their systems are – 10, 20, 30 years old, and they, they just can't pull that data together to actually confirm it's working, even if it is. You know, that's a great question because then you go, well, what's the ROI on the ROI? <laughs> because, you know, it's companies are rapidly, I think, upgrading their infrastructure, but you're right. Things live in different places. And, you know, how do you make this all come together? So let me answer that question a couple ways. You asked about outside organizations that have validated the return on investment, or at least the cost of this problem. And there's an organization called PEEF, P-F-E-E-F, Personal Financial Finance Employee Education Foundation, that has been doing studies on the effectiveness of financial education and its relationship to healthcare, cost savings, reduction in turnover, absenteeism, you name it, for about 30 years now. So that organization is definitely a great resource. And I think more and more companies are are looking at that, the data that they've developed. Willis Towers Watson also has a model now to estimate the cost of financial stress and benchmark it over time. And without going into their secret sauce, you know, 
obviously as actuaries, you know, it's a, it's a quite well-developed model. And so you're seeing more employers start to do that benchmarking and understanding what's the cost and where does it lie and what locations and what populations so that they can begin to address it. Separately, we have done ROI studies with our clients and have built a model based on our financial wellness scale that, you know, pretty directly correlates a financial wellness score with what the cost to the employer is in terms of absenteeism, garnishment, and money left on the table for HSA and FSA contributions, which the employer gets, you know, the tax savings on the contributions. Okay. So, so like, you know, employees who score a three on our one attendance assessment tend to have, you know, this level of absenteeism, but the ones who score at least a six or a seven, the absenteeism drops by a third or a half or some number. So, you know, if, if we can help your employees move from this to that, here's the potential drop in absenteeism that you're looking at, which is a pretty, pretty direct ROI benefit. Exactly. And quantifying that down to the numbers. But yes, absolutely. That's exactly how it's done so that that's kind of a shortcut for organizations that don't want to be spending all this time gathering this data. Again, ours is very limited in that in scope. It's only looking at HSA contributions, FSA, absenteeism, and garnishments because those were the pretty easy to gather from different clients and develop the model. You know, delayed retirement, healthcare cost savings, improved engagement, reduced turnover. I mean, those are very hard to pinpoint down to, well, financial wellness is contributing X amount to this. I mean, we know there's a correlation. You can look at people that have financial wellness or engaged in it and haven't and what their healthcare deltas are in terms of healthcare claims. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's hard to measure and, and time intensive. And that's where I think that Willis Towers Watson and PEEF come into play because they've done the heavy lifting there. And we'll make sure we, we put some links in the show notes out to those as well. So so people that want to follow up and, and check out groups like PEEF, just go to kitsis.com slash 23, because of course, we're here for episode 23. And we'll get some links out for the PEEF website and whatever we can add for around the Willis Towers Watson model for evaluating impact of financial stress as well. So Liz, what is what does the business look like from your end? Are you guys... I mean, do you even operate under the like the usual financial regulation structure? Like, are you a, a registered investment advisor because some of what you do is investment advice as a part of the process, or do you live in like a a coaching world that sits outside of RIAs and other business ent- and and other regulatory entities? Like, how does how does the structure actually work? We sit outside, so think of us kind of as a financial coaching firm slash concierge firm where we're really helping you put the pieces together, but we're not selling any financial products or services. We're not providing specific investment or insurance or security recommendations. We're really helping you navigate through your different benefits, make informed decisions about your finances when different life events come up. And most importantly, and most critically, develop the right financial habits, behaviors, and routines so that you are progressing financially, progressing forward rather than backwards. Okay. So that this gets part of the sort of back to the whole irony that of our industry that if you don't give specific investment advice and you don't recommend or sell products, like you can give advice about debt and budgeting and retirement and and risk management and college planning and and, and insurance and estate and like all of that stuff. 
And and none of it actually subjects you to regulatory scrutiny if you're not doing the investment advice and you're not doing the product implementation. Yeah. And, you know, I would say we go even further, though, and, and stay away from advice. It's pros and cons and frameworks so that even on those other issues, people people understand the trade-offs and, and can make whatever decision they want to make. I'm not going to tell you, you need to stop buying cars. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm not going to tell you anything, actually, because I'm not one of the certified financial planners that delivers the service. But it really is a coaching process where the person is in the driver's seat, as opposed to us being in the driver's seat. Does that make sense? Yep. It's it's that, the, that whole dynamic, the difference between consulting models where I tell you what to do and coaching models where, you know, I, I kind of presume you, you you probably know what to do. You just need some maybe guidance and education to make sure you're you're moving towards the right decision and then some some nudges and support and help to get you to move down the road that you already kind of know you should be pursuing. Correct. And you're making the choice, you know, and and determining what trade-offs you're willing to accept and not. I mean, everything obviously has its pros and cons. And so, you know, it's it's getting the individual employee to that place where they can can make those choices. So you mentioned coaching and advice being given by CFPs. So can you talk a little bit about what the like what the staff infrastructure of of financial finesse looks like? You 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 have some CFPs. I know you have some other folks on board, obviously, just to manage the operational infrastructure of the business. So can, can you talk to us about you know, advisor structure and the, and the staff infrastructure and, and like what, what the company looks like from a staffing perspective? Yeah, absolutely. And I want to clarify, it's coaching and guidance. We're not delivering advice even you know, at that employee level. So it's coaching and guidance that the CFPs are providing. And they're on staff, certified financial planners, we require 10 plus years of experience to even qualify to go through our kind of crazy interview process, which is an eight-step interview process. Only about 2% end up with an offer. So we have a full-time recruiter on board because as you can imagine, we really, you know, we need yeah, that. That's intense, an, an eight-step interview process yes. that only 2% of people get through. Like, yes, because it's a- Be ready to step up if you want to get this this gig. <laughs> Yeah, it's a well it's a hard it's a hard thing to find because it's a combination of that technical expertise, right? That you can have your CFP but not be really actively using it and so you could be rusty and not have that kind of hands-on expertise. It's the coaching. I mean, there's a psychology to coaching. So you have to have the knowledge, but you also have to have the active listening and the motivational skills and that ability to communicate in a way that works for the individual on the other end of the phone. And those individuals have all sorts of different personalities. So you have to have that adaptability. Then there's, you know, the ability to galvanize people, you know, in a room, in a group environment and get them excited and motivated and really facilitating our interactive workshops there's a cultural fit aspect and no, I'm forgetting some other steps, but it's really a lot of different personality aspects that don't necessarily typically coexist in a single person. So we're looking for unicorns. <laughs> How many financial advisors are on board? Or do, do you even, do you call them financial advisors or do you, do you give them a different label since they're, they're kind of technically doing coaching and guidance, but not advice? 
Yeah, we call them financial planners or financial coaches. We currently have 20 full-time, and that's all they're doing is financial coaching. And then we're rapidly growing and, you know, looking at getting to 30 by the end of the year. Wow. So there's a lot of growth going on. There's a lot of growth going on. I should say they, they give up their licenses to sell securities as a condition of employment, but they maintain their CFP certification. And we sponsor continuation of that, continuing education, and also any other designations that we think are additive to their knowledge base. So what are they doing? Like, Because you know, you, you've, you've talked about you've got Online wellness assessments and and learning tools, workshops, webcasts, up to up to the one on one coaching. So, which parts are the financial plan? These twenty full time CFPs doing? Are they just on the one on one end, or some combination of of one on ones and one to many workshops? And and just there's so many people demanding that that you've got twenty full time CFPs delivering it. Like, what what do they actually do? If if I'm a CFP employed by Financial Finesse. So we really look at working to people's strengths and then hiring around where there may be gaps because I think there's been a lot of research on that is a much better way to look at things than, hey, here's your weakness. Spend more time there. <laughs> so the way it you know works is obviously we're hiring for the ability to deliver all of our different services and to help out with the design of new curriculum and and the design of, you know, any innovation related to the online and mobile services we have. But it really ultimately evolves that people gravitate towards the services that, you know, that, they, that they're the best at. And those tend to give them the most fulfillment. So, you know, over time, you know, we sort of help planners find their niche based on, you know, what, where are they doing best? And, and they end up, contributing disproportionately in those areas. So we have some planners that, you know, are focused exclusively on the financial coaching. We have others that are focused more exclusively on workshops and webcasts. Everyone's redundant and can step in at any time, but it's, you know, it's, it's understanding, you know, you're going to be better in certain areas than others. And, you know, we want to really maximize everyone's strengths and their job satisfaction. So if I'm one of these CFPs working in this environment, so how am I compensated? Am I just like straight salary because there's no products or even like sort of revenue? I mean, a lot of advisors, even in independent RAs that are nominally salaried, often the salary has some some tie into their revenue or the clients that they're managing. But it, it sounds like you guys don't even fit that sort of structure. So like, are they just straight salary or salary plus bonuses for achieving the kinds of bonus objectives that salaried employees have put before them? Is that the structure? Well, I give a lot of hugs. <laughs> I do. I'm just I'm just kidding. Adding a little levity. They are salaried plus a bonus, which is derived mostly from service delivery results. We survey every single employee that has an interaction with a planner. And so those results really help dictate you know, well, what is your bonus level? And and the the overall bonus potential is up to about fifty percent of the salary. And we're we're looking at increasing that further. So I think ultimately we will be at a place where the bonuses based on the quality of service delivery actually exceed the base salary. That's where I want to get to, but you know, we're 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 progressing there. Interesting. And ironically to me, that's that's kind of a novel concept in our industry in our space, like 
compensation is based on actually asking the people who get the financial services what they think of the service. I feel like that shouldn't be a novel concept in our advisory world. I, I do not know very many advisory firms that actually say, well, yeah, our, our, our financial advisors are primarily compensated based on the satisfaction scores that clients give. Right. We sort of, there, there's always the grand satisfaction score, which is retain your clients. Cause if you're doing a really bad job, they'll leave and then there's less revenue. And then, then, then most advisors get paid less if, if the clients and the revenue are leaving. But I, I don't know very many firms that actually just survey the clients being served, ask them what they think of the service and compensate employees on that basis. You guys are kind of oddly unique in that regard. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, it's from our standpoint, it's in our best interest because we need to roll those survey results up to the employer level, right, to justify, you know, the program and and to justify expanding the program. So obviously, you know, the, our business model is very aligned with that approach. But I will, I think you make a good point. If you look at early indicators, I would imagine that before someone leaves, there's some level of dissatisfaction. And or at least not the level of satisfaction you want, right? Not that, oh, this is an absolutely amazing service. You know, this is life changing for me. So I could see how this same model could be useful for financial advisors to potentially capture problems early on that they may not find out about. I mean, maybe not even ever, right? Because I think when someone, by the time someone leaves, I'm not sure how vocal they are about the nuances that may have caused them to leave outside of the very obvious one, which is losing money. <laughs> so for typical CFPs, like can I ask you, what what is their earning potential? Like what kinds of salaries are available if, if someone you know, wants to at least apply and go through the highly challenging vetting process? But what are you getting to at the other end? What are what does starting salaries look like for these kinds of CFP with 10 years of experience? Uh, you know, in industry terms, like no production requirements, your clients are going to basically be handed to you as part of what the financial finesse is doing with with the employers in the first place. Like, what do you get compensated for that that kind of job as an experienced CFP? So, the base salary starts at eighty thousand. Obviously, we have you know career paths for planners where they move up as they gain more experience, but then the bonus is really where it you know it elevates and becomes you know, much more of a six-figure job. And then as you move up, you know, more into the six figures. So again, I think our when I look at the business, you know, you really want to reward performance. And so, you know, we're looking at increasing first and foremost the bonus potential as opposed to the salary. They also get profit share and stock options which vest after five years and we pay the cost of them, you know, vesting from the tax associated with switching them to stock. Wow. So I I mean, it sounds like even just with the with the bonus potential that's on the table from the start, most people getting started, granted you 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 have to run the you know the vetting gauntlet up front, but almost anybody who starts has a pretty decent shot at a six figure income just to to be the financial coach, the financial wellness provider under the financial finesse umbrella, and they're not in a business development or a sales role. They're just in an actual like serve people and help them improve their financial wellness role. Yeah. And that's a fun, that's a question we get a lot 
but what is my sales role? <laughs> what do you expect? And it's yeah, like, no, 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 but really, what's my sales role? And it's like, no, and but but do you want me to find companies in my area that I could then go in and do workshops? No, 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 there's no and it, it, that is, that's been a very interesting one of our, our challenges is the is this too good to be true? Like it's a hard thing for someone that has, you know, been subject to quotas and production and all of that to, to say, well, but, you know, where's the catch kind of thing. And there's, there's no catch. I mean, the catch is you have to work for me. So, <laughs> and you might get hugged, <laughs> but no, it's a demanding work environment. I'm not going to, I mean, if I look at why you wouldn't want to do this, it's a demanding work environment and we're, it's a growing industry. And, you know, we have extremely high standards. And so things you might think, wow, I knocked it out of the park. And we're like, thanks for doing your job. You know, I mean, there is a, you know, in order for companies to pay for this, they obviously have to have this behavioral change and this level of employee engagement. And I mean, our service delivery standard is 4.8 out of 5. I mean, that's daunting. So there's a lot of pressure because the team is very good and you come in and it's, you know, you're surrounded by these people that, you know, have potentially been doing this for a while and, and really, you know, I think it can be, I think that it can be intimidating. And I think it's not an easy environment from that perspective. The other thing is, you know, we're, we have planners all over the country. So they're working from their home offices. And, you know, some people like that interaction with their colleagues, you know, coming to an office and everyone thinks, oh, working from home is awesome. You know, sometimes it's isolating. I can certainly attest to that living in a world where, much of what I do these days is working from home. You know, you you do need to. I mean, it sounds like a layaway thing, but you, you you need some social outlets. You need to make sure you've got some some structure for adult interaction. I, you know, it, it works for me because I do so much travel for conferences and speaking engagements at, at advisory events, and, and thank goodness we have conferences all year round. So I'm, I'm traveling almost every week, which for me is is some of that external outlet. So I'm, I'm not solely pent up in the house all day, all day, every day, or it, it does get a little bit draining and isolating. So what does the rest of the staffing infrastructure look like? I mean, is, is the whole firm basically just a, a giant number of CFPs that engage with the employees and all the various channels that you've got and and just a couple of back office folks to support them? Or 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 is there a whole bunch of other people at a home base as well? Like what is what is the overall staff structure look like in financial finesse? Yeah, it really requires a lot of very good technology infrastructure, as well as operational infrastructure. Think of it as air traffic control, working with all these different employers with different locations and and so forth, and then having to staff the helpline. And, you know, it's a lot of logistics. And so the rest of the employees, I mean, about half are certified financial planners and half are in operations or uh, what we call consulting and consulting a client service, which is really working with the clients or prospects on designing the programs. And then, you know, on the client service side, making sure they're satisfied, reviewing results, adapting the programs. But a lot of operations involved, which, you know, I know we're going to get to mistakes and lessons is I think as an entrepreneur, at least speaking for myself and some of the entrepreneurs I know, you love the idea and you tend to be good at sales and marketing and product development. But this whole thing where, you know, 
there's the day-to-day things that if they don't get done, (laughs) render everything an entrepreneur does completely irrelevant. It's easy to underestimate the value of that. And I think it's the early years. I mean, we got through it because we had a great team and you get through it because you have to. But, you know, we were understaffed in that area. And I don't think I, I valued the importance of infrastructure and, and you know, back-end technology, right? Everyone loves front-end technology because it's what the user sees. Well, the back-end is equally, if not more important, because the front-end can't exist in at least a, a continued state of innovation without the back-end. So what does the back-end infrastructure look like for a business like yours? I mean, is this just a a giant Salesforce database with a, a bajillion employee contacts at all the possible firms that you work with? What what is the what what does the back end infrastructure look like for a firm like yours? You know, I this is uh, we call it Blue, and I I don't want to go into too much detail because it is proprietary, and we're actually even seeking a patent on it because it relates to some of our front end, but it's a quite an extensive technology system that allows us to really customize to the individual because someone may be calling on the phone and then separately using our financial wellness assessment. And so, you know, we want to have that continuity and we want to progressively understand individual people better. Separately, there's all of the, you know, the scheduling and capacity analysis and KPIs and all of that, that, you know, you want to make sure that you have even and fair workflow and you know, one person's not in the same place, you know, at the same t- or two places at the same time kind of thing. So there's layers of it, but it is intense. It is intense. We couldn't do what we do without it. I mean, at the scale, we do it. Interesting. And so take us back a little bit to how you got started in this in the first place. Like, how did you, I mean, did you just start this business as your first job? Were you doing some other things first? Like, how did you land in this business in the financial services industry? Ah, so I started in, out investment banking and loved it the first year. It was, you know, back when it was Smith Barney Harris Upham. Amazing experience. I was an analyst, you know, corporate finance, New York City, 80 hour work weeks, just crazy but intense and learned so much. Learned the second year that I did not want this to be my life because they pay you progressively more and it's pretty easy to get caught up in kind of climbing the ladder, but it's a rough life. It's a rough life. And I also learned I had my ideas on how to do things (laughs) that weren't always in line with corporate. And so kind of the beginning of that idea that, oh, maybe I'm meant to do my own thing because I kind of do my own thing anyway. <laughs> and then I, then I, you know, could actually make money from it and, and not be the renegade, which is not always a fun position. So I took a break to go to business school. And, you know, I knew obviously there was a lot I could learn from it, but it was after that, cr- those crazy work weeks deciding, you know what, I need to get back to California, which is where I'm from. I need to just kind of get some perspective and figure it out, figure out what I want to do. And Halfway, I went to UCLA Business School and halfway through decided, you know what? I want to start a hedge fund. And I had a friend, you know, that was a broker, high net worth broker at Smith Barney that I really, really respected, you know, the way he invested. And together we developed a value investing strategy and a hypothetical portfolio and, you know, just really did everything we could to justify ourselves as young 24 or 25 year olds. <laughs> 
and get some ultimately get some investment capital. And I was effectively sales and marketing. You know, you can't market very heavily in that world, but kind of rubbing elbows, going to the conferences, and he was, you know, managing the assets. And in the process of, you know, talking to prospective and current clients, began to become interested in their financial situations holistically and started to realize, wow, there are these people are incredibly intelligent. I mean, incredibly successful, but either don't know some of the basics or ignore, you know, the rules of asset allocation and so forth, because they're going to beat the market, you know? And, and as I was looking at that, I was like, wow, if the high net worth, and this was right before the dot-com crash, if high net worth investors are doing things to really jeopardize a lot of their wealth, is, is how I saw it. What about the rest of us? I mean, they could take the hit and still be okay. What about, you know, the 99% of people that aren't accredited investors? What's going to happen to them? And who's out there? Like just looking at people objectively and saying, you know, hey, I have no skin in the game, but this is really, you know, the picture of the risk that you're taking and the fees that you're paying. I mean, you need to know what you're getting into here. And so from there, I started doing workshops just kind of as an outlet and fell in love with it and got a lot of calls of, you know, when's the next workshop and realized I can't run a hedge fund and be doing unbiased financial workshops, I have to kind of make it as, as like a side gig, you know, just to fill the gaps. Yeah, right. except it was a, I didn't charge anything. And I, so I was a, and I, I provided food. So it wasn't a very good side hustle financially, but it was emotionally and just decided, you know what, I ha- I will regret more not trying this, that there is this need, there is this hunger for objective, unbiased information if it's presented in the right way, again, if it's presented in a way that really connects with people's lives and their needs financially, and I have to try this and and kind of hope that there is a business here. I mean, it was unprecedented, so there wasn't really research I could do to say, what's the average profit margin for companies that do unbiased financial education? It, it wasn't really there. And and when were you making this transition? Like when when were you when were you shifting to do this? Uh, Nineteen ninety nine. Okay, so yeah, so there's, I mean, e- even fee only financial planning and the rise of the RAA movement and all of that was still very much nascent in 1999. I mean, NAPFA had been around for a number of years, but not a lot of people that were actually active in that space. So, what was the vision when you were launching? Like, are you are you doing now what you originally envisioned, or did the like the company start as something different and then you kind of pivoted in this direction? Where where, where was the beginning of the the company and the business model. It was a pivot and yet also a preservation of the core values. So the pivot was we started out focusing on women because you look at all the statistics, right? And you say women are going to live longer. You know, they're probably going to have less social security. They have higher healthcare costs. Like they really need this information and this education. I mean, there's a desperate need for this. And I was so passionate about it. And it was working in markets where I had a lot of connections, San Francisco and LA. But when we tried to make this national, and it was it was business to consumer at that point, after I stopped volunteering and bringing the food, <laughs> I started charging. And it became obvious the customer acquisition cost is far too high, number one. And number two, just because someone needs something doesn't mean they want it. And that 
sounds so obvious, but I think it's a mistake that so many entrepreneurs make, which is there's such a need for this. Yeah, there there is, but unless people see that need, you're going to have to invest a whole lot of money. I mean, that's a huge amount of venture capital you need to really shift perspective versus going after a need that is already recognized. And so what happened was, you know, I began to have requests from, you know, some of the women in the audience as I was doing these saying, what's your daily rate? Because I'd like you to come and do this for my company because they were in HR. And I remember the first time that happened, I just said, $500. (laughs) Because I I was like, that just seemed... Answer with a number. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, well, that's that's much easier than, you know, $49.95 and getting, you know, 10 people. So obviously, that's not the cost now. And I'm not the one doing it now, which also probably, you know, adds to the, the value. But it became obvious that, wait a minute, companies are an avenue for this. And that is going to be a much more lucrative model and a much more effective model for reaching people. And we still reach women, but, and we actually reach women two to one. So we're still honoring, I think, that aspect of our mission, but it's available to everyone because, you know, financial stress is not exclusive to women and financial planning is needed, you know, by everyone. So, so there was that pivot and we, you know, we really never looked back after that, it became obvious that the corporate market was the way to go and have since really built out our offering and expanded the comp, you know, the depth of service we provide in terms of marketing support and return on investment analysis and the, the types of products. Obviously, smartphones weren't around. So, you know, we've evolved our product offering to keep up with technology and, you know, the benefits of technology. But since then, it's, it's really been about helping employees and employers as opposed to women consumers. So how how long were you kind of struggling with the with the initial model in the direct consumer realm before you you switched to the employer channel? I mean was that a couple months in or like a couple of years before you decided that the direct consumer end just wasn't working or wasn't scaling? About a year. And that was probably nine months too long. So I would say, you know, I think one thing I've learned is you know, they say it, right? Fail fast. I think you, there's that ego of, I know this is a good idea. It just needs a little more time, a little more, you know, and it, cutting losses is a hard thing to do. I think it's a hard thing to do emotionally, but it's the right thing to do. And so in retrospect, and the advice I would give is when you see very clear signs that economically the model's not working, it's time to pivot. Well, and, and I think the hardest version of that for most people is, when they're doing something and there's a need and and you know there's a need and you can see there's a need because it's very hard to let go of the idea that when I know there's a need and I know I'm providing a valuable solution, like I just have to keep going a little longer and the word will get out and the solution will go word of mouth viral and, and the people will show up and you keep waiting for the people to show up and waiting for the people to show up. A lot of businesses, I think, go out of business, including in the advisory world by by failing to recognize and like it's not enough to just know that there's a need and be able to provide a solution you you have to get people who want it are actually willing to pay for it which requires often overcoming a whole lot of psychological barriers and have a way to get your solution that they want and are willing to pay for in front of them at the right time cuz like 
they won't necessarily just magically find their way to your door. It's like advising is not an if you build it, they will come kind of world. And and I feel like this is uh you know, notwithstanding the fact that you learned this lesson in in nineteen ninety-nine, frankly, I feel like we we watched a whole bunch of robo advisors and tech firms learn and reinvent the same lesson over the past five or six years by finding, you know, yeah, consumers make a lot of bad decisions with their portfolios and clearly need better asset allocation advice. It doesn't mean they show up out of the blue and pay for it, which is why most of the robo-advisors are, are struggling to grow at the rates that they had once expected because those those client acquisition costs get hard. It's very expensive to market in volume and scale to persuade people to do things that they might need, but they haven't necessarily convinced themselves that they're ready to deal with. Exactly. And, you know, again, I made a conscious decision that this was going to grow organically. I was going to self-fund. So I think that decision might might have been easier for me just because of finite resources versus, you know, VC, fun- you know, heavy VC funded firms where you think, okay, the, we'll, we'll get there if we invest X, right? And then X becomes X plus <laughs> Y. And then it, you know, it, it's, it's hard to know where that tipping point's going to be. It was obvious to me it just wasn't going to be sustainable. And did you did you bootstrap your way all the way through on the company or did you take outside capital at some point? Like how did that how did that building process go? I've self-funded the whole way through. I psychologically know myself well enough to know that even if I had the best possible kind of angel investors or you know, venture capitalists or friends and family, I would be beholden to them in a way that I, I think just would be hard for me to to handle. I've never been comfortable kind of owing someone. And I understand equity is a risk, right? They're taking a risk. I wouldn't be owing them technically, but in my head, I would be owing them. And that anxiety for an already anxious person was just something I knew I didn't want to get into. Yeah. And so it was just a path of reinvesting throughout? I mean, did did that mean you got to the point of some entrepreneurs, like you were living on credit cards and living in debt in the early years, trying to trying to build up to the point that it worked? Or or were you able to get to a break-even point pretty quickly, at least? Yeah. I mean, it, we were able to get to a point pretty quickly. I did not need to go into debt. and I didn't want to go into debt. So I kind of knew how much I was going to be able to tolerate. And so we got to a point pretty quickly that was like, okay, this is a profitable business model. And then anything more is more like investment capital versus subsidizing the business model. And and was that basically how you viewed it? Like, we're going to generate a certain dollar of profit so I can cover my bills. And then everything else we've got on top of that, we're just going to start reinvesting back into the business for growth? Yeah. I mean, we've yes, we've been very focused on reinvesting back for growth. Very focused. Very focused on the long game as opposed to I mean, obviously, I take a salary, but it's not a regular salary <laughs> versus a large salary because I think you know the longer term is is where you need to focus when you're in a business that's growing pretty quickly and that you really believe in. And you know, the return I'm going to get investing money back in the business, you know, from profits we generate, I think, is more than taking money out. And and so you mentioned that over time, as you build a, a lot of the a lot of the focus became the infrastructure and and the and the importance of infrastructure. And so I'm 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 wondering, can you just talk about that a little bit more from your 
perspective, like what is what does infrastructure mean <laughs> exactly? Because for manufacturing businesses, a lot of infrastructure is like we built a factory and then we bought equipment, giant machines that sit in the factory. And like that's the infrastructure. It's physical hardware. You're in a service business. So what does infrastructure mean to you? And, and like what have you learned in, in going through that growth process about infrastructure, maybe what you wish you did differently for infrastructure? You just kind of gave me an aha moment that if I was building a factory, I think that is much more obvious, right? How can you possibly produce anything without the appropriate equipment, right? And people to manage that equipment. In our business, there's the obvious infrastructure, which is obviously planners to deliver the service, you know, the standard, you know, accounting and, and basic operational functions around scheduling and the basic admin functions that are related to, to the logistics. But I think where I really didn't fully comprehend was the importance, for example, of the, the nuanced infrastructure. So we have a home base in El Segundo, and then we have planners all over the country. It's an unofficial role, but we have people that are connectors and that really help the two sides come together. Because like I said, it's hard to be in your home, right? And you're like, what's going on at headquarters? I just heard that we got this new client. What does that mean? Am I going to have to work extra shifts? Am I going to, what's expected of me? What's my role? I want this role, but so-and-so got it. I mean, it just can turn into kind of this weird spiral of unintended consequences, even the good things. And that's the good things. The bad things can get even worse. So I don't think I really understood the importance of human infrastructure to bridge the gap between the planners and those at headquarters and the importance of FaceTime and bringing people together. I mean, we, we implemented quarterly planner training weeks where we bring the planners and El Segundo together and, you know, we strategize and we discuss things and we bond. The bonding I didn't, I mean, you know, it's, I'm, I'm very much in Myers-Briggs, I'm very much a T versus an F. So I bonded my own way, but I didn't realize the importance of how those relationships foundationally need to be so strong. And so there's infrastructure around those relationships in terms of meetings you have and, and activities you have and people who, again, are the connectors and clarity around roles and responsibilities I've always been roll your sleeves up and do what you need to do. Well, try telling that to 40 people. Like, <laughs> that doesn't work. It might work with five. So it's, it's some of those more nuanced things. Along with process, I've always thought, you know, the result over the process. Well, the problem is you can't scale without process. So that took me a little too long to learn, I think. And we were reinventing the wheel too much. You know, were things in place we could leverage that we had done you know, for other clients that we could leverage into new engagements, but instead we were starting from scratch again on marketing campaigns, things like that. So just just recognizing like when you serve people, when you serve them consistently, when you serve a consistent type of, of clientele, like when you do something for a client once, you don't just do it once, you you turn it into a process and say, we're going to repeat that for other people as well. And now I don't have to think and reinvent the wheel every time I'm doing a new thing with a new client. Yeah. And there's this thing called documentation that was new. 
<laughs> to me, <laughs> which is you write down what you did. So if someone else is doing it in the future, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm making light of it, but it sounds so obvious. It sounds so painfully obvious, but I really underappreciated it and did not, you know, encourage it or, you know, require it to the level it, it needed to be. I mean, I've obviously since then we have an excellent director of operations that has things buttoned down. And I, I'm like, how did I even run this business without him? Yeah. Uh, so, so what does that staff structure look like for you now that, that, that you've got in place, like tiers of managers and tiers of operations and, and tiers of communication? Like what, what, uh, what does that staffing management support structure look like, particularly in a world where you've got advisors distributed all over the country? Yeah, so it's it's a relatively flat structure, but but there is structure. And so we do have a, you know, director of financial planning that, you know, oversees the planners. He has since we've since promoted a, another woman to kind of co-run that team with him because with 20 reporting to one, that's obviously, you know, a challenge. We have operations, technology. I mean, so we have our different teams and leaders of the teams, but it does still remain a company where with on a project basis, we get together the people that we think are the best fit for that project, obviously understanding bandwidth, but the people that have the strengths, the combination of strengths, you know, a common passion for those projects. So, you know, right now we're going through a infrastructure expansion of our our blue technology infrastructure. And, you know, we have people lining up to volunteer, you know, outside of my day job, I want, you know, to be part of this in this area, because I know how it's going to benefit me and the company in the future. And so those are a little bit more organic. And I think that's, that's the way to do it for the size we are right now. How many employees are are on board in total between, you know, you said there's 20 CFPs and then there's these, you know, operations and technology and all these different areas. Like how many are there in total and, and are the rest as distributed as the planners are, or is it like the planners are distributed, but the rest of the team is centered around El Segundo? So we have 37 full-time. We have a few more that are part-time and then independent contractors on top of that, but we have 37 full-time and those that are not certified financial planners are based in El Segundo. Okay, so there, there's kind of like a core of operations, and then the advisors are are distributed out to the various satellites. Yeah, the financial planners are in their, you know, they're they're working from home, so they're all over the country. We have coverage in every single region, and you know, most of the major markets around the country, and you know, we hire on a national level, so you know, when we post a job opening, I mean, as long as you're near a major airport you know, and, and willing to travel, you know, the, the amount needed to do the job, you can be located anywhere. Now you still have to pass the eight step process and you still have to be a CFP in 10 years experience. But we realized pretty quickly, we needed to look at things nationally as opposed to locally for the planners because our clients are all over. And how much do they, do they travel? So I guess they're, they're, they're traveling quarterly back to, to El Segundo for, your team building process. And then on top of that, they're doing some level of travel directly to firms where they need to do in-person workshops or in-person one-on-ones. Yes, exactly. And less than they used to, because we've seen a movement towards webcasts. 
and a movement towards virtual one-on-ones with Skype and so forth. I mean, you can do a lot more than you used to be able to do with technology. All that said, I believe that there will always be you know, room and demand for that sitting across the table, especially during critical life events. But it's, you know, I would say travel average is probably around 25% of the time. It used to be much closer to 50. So as you look back on this path and, and trajectory that you've gone through in the business and, you know, from starring your own 1999, now you're coming up on a 20-year anniversary for the company in a few years. And, and I mean, it sounds like growth is accelerating if you're you're hiring 10 advisors this year and and you were it you know it took you 18 years to get from the zero to the first 20 and now you're getting to the acceleration point where there's 10 more coming in the next year i'm curious as you look back on it whether there are any like particular inflection points i mean what were the what were the turning points in the in the business for you that that kind of changed the path or changed the trajectory well, there was the obvious turning point, you know, around, okay, going business to consumer and focusing on women was not going to work. So there was the pivot there. There was early on in the business, we actually had a network strategy as opposed to hiring full-time. And we learned pretty quickly that we needed that level of control. You know, when you're dealing with these large corporations, it has to be even perception is reality, right? So let's say everyone in the network is wonderful. You know, they're looking at it going, I want to make sure there's no opportunity for any sort of conflict of interest. So we moved to this full-time model that required more overhead. And that's part of why the, the growth was so slow because, you know, is I mean, slow comparatively because it was organic, right? So we're not, you know, getting all this VC money and hiring 100 planners. We're hiring the planners as we can afford to hire the planners. So that was an inflection point. You know, I think 2001 post-Inrun, I think independence became a little bit more important. Transparency, you know, some of the values we stand for, I think we got a little bit more more traction there. The recession was surprisingly good to us as a business because what was happening was employers were changing their benefits models. In some cases, they stop the match or maybe they would, you know, freeze the pension or change the healthcare structure. And so we would come into play to help facilitate those changes and to be that avenue of, okay, maybe you don't have what you used to have, but you can still get there if you plan effectively. So we're a little bit counter cyclical, I think, in in that sense that you know, there's a big element of change management to what we do. I mean, I think that's what's enabled the business in general, right? Is people go, okay, I'm on my own now, much more than, you know, my parents or grandparents were. I've got to figure this out. And necessity is the mother of invention, right? So I've got to figure it out. So I'm going to seek it out and be much more receptive to it when it's offered versus, you know, if we had done this, you know, a couple generations ago, why would people need this? They they have it taken care of for them. So on that theme, though, I I, I have to ask that you mentioned a few times that that part of the role is is basically helping people navigate their employee benefits options and and, and choosing what to do and and you know, try to optimize and maximize their benefits. So is is there an ever a problem from the employer's perspective? It's like so, Liz, love love your company, what you do, but you you're 
you're teaching people how to game my benefits to take more money from me as the employer. I feel like I paid you for the privilege of having you train my employees how to get more money out of the out of the employer. Like, is there ever an, an, an awkwardness there that you're you're teaching them how to maximize what are benefits for the employee, but additional costs for the employer? And then they come back and say, why do we pay you to teach our employees how to draw more money from us? Like, is, is, am I just imagining that as sort of a strange circular conflict kind of thing? It's a brilliant question. And what I will say is I believe that dilemma exists, but it does not exist in those who are calling us. In other words, the companies that are calling us are really, you know, kind of those best places to work kind of organizations. And they're, they see we have a match for, for a reason, right? We want to avoid the delayed retirement situation that, you know, we may be starting to feel now, like, you know, they've, or they've even increased their matches, for example. And so it's the benefits are there for a reason. They believe that the benefits have an ROI when employees participate in them and they want to see more participation because they understand the impact that has on their organization from all aspects, employee engagement, reduced turnover, reducing delayed retirement, improvements in health, all of that, recruitment, retention, all of that. That said, I do not pretend to say there are not companies out there that I mean, there are probably a lot of them. We just don't hear from them. The companies out there that say, let's let's kind of keep the match a secret because... <laughs> we have to do it, but we don't have to advertise it that heavily. Do right. We, we got to do it in case someone asks and we could say we have it, but we really don't want people to use it. I'm not naive. I know that there are those firms. I do believe, though, that we're seeing a progression, I think, in terms of social responsibility and in terms of culture and the importance of culture and transparency and all of that. So I do believe we are seeing companies kind of take a different point of view around that, especially now that they can't, they don't offer as many of the guaranteed benefits they used to offer. So as we come to the end, this is a show about success and and people that are building successful businesses. And and one of the things I've I've long observed is that success means different things to different people and 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 even different things to the same person at at different points in the in the business and in our lives. And so as someone who's I think built what most people would objectively call a successful business, you know, one of the the largest in your space doing financial wellness or at least the the largest independent one that I know of outside of a couple of large accounting firms that that do this like ACO and and PwC and and Ernst & Young. So having having gone through this successful business trajectory over the past 20 years, I'm curious how you look at it going forward and and how do you define success from here? Oh, that is such a good question. We are mission-based. So the number one priority for me is that we profitably maintain our mission and grow our impact. Obviously, a lot of people that look at the clientele we have and say, God, you know, a financial services firm would pay a lot of money to have access to all these employees. You know, you could sell this business for a lot. And well, why start it? Why start it then? Why, what, what, I mean, why build something like sell completely counter to the whole entire reason we started, which was to provide unbiased financial guidance to become a marketing channel? For a financial services firm is, I don't care if it's 
$3 billion. That's not success to me. That's defeats the whole purpose of why you would do this in the first place. So success to me is continuing to grow and thrive and influence the industry. You know, I think we're seeing the industry make some really positive developments. I think you're part of that with what you're doing and, you know, continue to expand the number of clients we reach to to, Im- to deepen our impact on individual employees and provide other products and services that may enable the industry to have more data and information and best practices around how to successfully address these major issues. I love just the whole vision around trying to just keep expanding the impact and expanding the reach. You know, it's such a deep pool that you're in with mid to large size employers and just millions and millions and millions of employees who don't necessarily get reached by traditional financial advisors and and don't have a lot of other people coming at them to give any kind of financial guidance or certainly not unconflicted financial guidance. So I'm excited to see what you guys can keep doing from here and, and really thankful and appreciative that you could join us on the podcast today to tell this story. Well, thanks for having me. This was fun. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.